0: them on the money line and then roll it over every single time they win. Way out of here! Oh goodness! The last seven games in which they've come in with rest have all gone under. Got it! Two and a half seconds
1: to go. Plus one fifteen, the price I paid for this. Yeah, I like it. Makes the catch the ten, and he's in for a touchdown. This is behind the bets, the podcast. Welcome into to the latest Behind the Bets podcast. I am Doug Kazarian. We are taping this on Wednesday, June 9th, and it is peak NBA playoff season. Usually this time of year, we're looking at the finals, but obviously delayed start and all that fun stuff. So we've adjusted in the calendar. So we're in the conference semis. Only one game tonight. So we can have a little bit of a shelf life on this. And uh, my next guest, Jonathan Von Tobel of Vegas Stats and Information Network, vcin.com. And uh first time he's never been on the pod before, but I know I'm out here in Las Vegas, talk hoops with him all the time. We text. So I think he's has a lot of great insight and valuable insight for those listening. So we'll have a good conversation. We'll talk about each remaining series and maybe a little bit of the futures market as well. And hopefully everyone can apply some of our convo to the um just in general, your own sort of portfolio of wagers. And uh just want to thank, you know, Tim Bontemps. I don't know, a month or so ago, was on the podcast, maybe a little bit longer, and we talked about all the, the awards in the postseason, and Jokic cashed. Uh, we've seen, um, uh, so Tibbs, and and, and, and Tim was given that. He said it's going to be, you know, it wasn't like an automatic, but he brought up Tibbs at the time. I think it was like plus 550, I want to say, and then obviously we have LaMelo lurking, if those who took the plus money that Tim recommended. So there is valuable information on this pod. I uh, Got to trust it. I, I try to filter it out and we get the right people here. So just want to make that note. Also, don't forget, obviously, this is a weekly podcast, but we have a daily podcast every weekday, posts around 12, 15 p.m. or so Eastern, the Daily Wager pod. And it's Joe Fortenbaugh, Tyler Fulgham, and I kind of rotate, two of us. We'll uh, give you just our quick in and out in 10 minutes, quick plays of the day. You know, like at night, like tonight, we'll break down the NBA game and then a couple baseball plays uh, for you. So go subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. You'll get your daily dose. And then in addition to the Daily Wager uh, show on television, which this week is tonight, um, five thirty Eastern, so we're a half hour earlier. Although still a full hour show, same for tomorrow, and then and on sun, uh, Friday we'll be at six Eastern. Although I am off traveling with family, so that's that'll do it. But let's get to JVT. I want winners. Time now to welcome in a man who is a uh, hopefully a long time, but definitely a first time, Jonathan Von Tobel, who handles the. Well, the NBA content over at Vsin, Vegas Stats and Information Network, we've had some of your colleagues on, but it's good to have you on, JVT. Thanks for having me, dude. You know, I listen to your
0: podcast all the time. I'm a very big fan. So, yes, first time oh. in a long time. So, I'm totally into this.
1: Well, I was a guest on your pod a week ago and I and I figured it made a lot of sense to get some new voices for our listeners here and you do have a pod just real quickly, what what's your podcast and then you're always on Vsin sporadically, obviously a lot during the NBA playoffs.
0: Yeah, Hardwood Handicappers is the podcast. So, you know, the, the niche of NBA handicapping, uh, many voices on it throughout the weeks, you included, and many other NBA heads as well. Uh, and you can find it wherever you get your podcast. And uh, you'll have to check with me on a week to week basis for the on air schedule. But yeah, VSIN pretty much everywhere and vsin.com slash JVT for all of the written work.
1: Well, that's good because we uh, rotate a little bit. Usually we like to do Wednesdays or so because it, it works. Um, but obviously, the, the NBA schedule just being daily as opposed to football season. Uh, changes things up and we try to find the sweet spots in the schedule. So in terms of uh, uh, the games I want to get to, but first like you're definitely used, uh, like use power ratings and a lot of uh, you find sort of angles and uh, I've, you know, text you a bunch, and sometimes it'll you'll you'll fixate, and I will too on something on like a huge advantage in a, in a in a matchup, whether it be transition points versus the other teams, or you know other things. Just how do you figure out how to approach stuff from a um, like a an analytics perspective when you when you incorporate the point spread?
0: Yeah, So I I think when it starts with it, you know, I am big matchup and analytically based, as you mentioned, you know, I I love to use a a lot of the numbers that are provided to us, whether it's the NBA's website, you know, cleaning the glass is one of the websites that I love to use too, in terms of the analytical stuff Uh, and big on matchups as well. And and tying that into the the point spread and the power ratings, you know, my numbers will come off, I think a little bit different on a day-to-day basis in the NBA during the regular season, because I think one of my downfalls is I love matchups and and analytics so much that I won't account for scheduling spots as much. And I'm very much in the camp of, ah, well, you know what, if team X is, is bad at defending the perimeter, I don't care if it's a Wednesday night, a second leg of a back-to-back for the most part in Utah, I think that it'll probably play out in my favor more often than not. And so that'll probably be the downfall. I think sometimes when it comes to handicapping the regular season and that's where I'll get caught. But I, I think when it comes to the postseason, Doug, The analytics approach really does help because you play a best of seven for a reason. And you know, we know this all the time when it comes to data and analytics. The larger the sample size, the more often or not, that the the more accurate representation you're going to get. You know, case in point, that Clippers and Mavericks series, where they play a best of seven and they eventually win in seven and they win four out of five games. And of those five games, the numbers really stuck out in terms of what the Clippers were able to do. Shoot the ball about 40%, hold the Mavericks to under 1.1 point per possession. You know, all of those things really started to transpire over the course of four or five games at the end of that series so I think there's strengths and weaknesses to an approach like that but I do I do really get comfortable and in a groove in the postseason because I do have a lot of confidence that the numbers that you see are really going to play out over the course of a seven game sample size as opposed to on a night to night basis where the opponent changes you know on on any given night throughout the regular season
1: well, it's a great point uh, in terms of the playoff component. And that's, I think the Knicks uh, sort of leveled out. I was uh, yep. such a proud moment of mine because I was breaking down my thought process after like maybe games one or two. I said, you know what? The Knicks sort of competitive advantage during the regular season is that they just play harder than everyone, but that's, that's leveled off in the postseason when their opponent is leveling off. And then that enabled you, because you were big on the Hawks in that series, to use the matchup and, and some of the other analytics. So uh, when I said I was so proud, as I saw, I, Barkley basically said the same thing on TV. Um, basically saying the Knicks just, better, just try harder during the regular season than no one else does. So it's sort of like the Russell Westbrook theory. But anyways, let's go ahead um, and spin it forward to tonight. Now, uh, we've seen some teams steal game one and then the bounce back, kind of like Philly last night. But here we have the Suns prevailed in the second half and ran away with it. Now, I thought Denver, I thought people were dismissing Denver a little too much. But I'm was a little worried now that I think about it more. It's just that, you know, like the 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 two things. Jokic going against is like a big deal. Like that, he's called Aiton the toughest defender he's faced. Uh, and then obviously, if Aiton can match the production, that's a cherry on top. But just for the most part, Jokic can't do all the things that make him amazing when he's guarded by Aiton. And on the and on two two, and that's more so, is that the role players are fine but they look like world beaters at times against portland's defense that's just not going to happen against the sun so i think over the course of four quarters i think phoenix has too much firepower and i even think some i see some five i see a five at betmgm that's how i would play this game
0: yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, you kind of alluded to, I thought the the thought that the market and the general perception of Denver was too low. That was definitely in that Portland series, right? Before the series, they're underdogs. When it's tied 2-2, they're underdogs despite getting two or three at home, right? The course of the, the rest of the course of that series. But it's the 29th ranked defense in terms of efficiency in the NBA. It's a team that has no interior presence defensively to stop Nikola Jokic, And you saw him eat them alive. But I think one of the key stats that I focused on coming into this series as part of a big-picture type deal, and you saw it transpire in the, in the first game, you know, against Portland, Jokic only averaged about four and a half assists, and you can get away with that. The ancillary piece is not performing up to snuff right, against a team that is poor defensively. And then in game one, Jokic only three assists. And it's not so much that he needs to have a lot of assists, Doug, but I think it speaks to the fact that the pieces around him are now faced with a much better team defensively, right? Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, uh, Chris Paul, who is not, by any means, a like dominant on-ball defender, but will rarely be caught out of position on defense because he's such a smart player, and now. Your other pieces around Jokic need to step up yet again. You have this massive gap in the backcourt between you and your opponent once more, except this time the defense is going to be a lot better. And I think that's what's going to be the troubling part here for the Denver Nuggets, to dig out of a hole like this and to be able to beat an opponent like Phoenix. Your other pieces have to perform at an extremely high level. And the wings and the defensive presence that the Suns have, it's just going to be a problem on top of, I think on the other end, having an issue facing that offense. You know, your colleague Zach Lowe wrote a great column about the pick and roll that the Suns have and how they can just do so much off of it and find so many different shooters and so many other things, whether Aiton, Booker, Bridges, uh, Crowder. There's so many other options that the Suns have offensively that they don't need Chris Paul and Devin Booker to be dominant. So I just thought that this series overall, I was really high on Denver in the Portland series. They took care of business quicker than I thought because I thought it was going to be a seven-game series. But in this one, it's hard to overcome the losses of PJ Doge or Will Barton, who maybe is back in the next game, uh, and, of course, Jamal Murray, that I would agree with that. I think the gap between these two is going
1: to be pretty big, especially when Phoenix is playing at home. So I, I definitely would agree with that sentiment. So I'd grab the five if you can. I'd play it up to six. I know there's been some buyback by smart money, but I, I, don't, I disagree with it. Although maybe – you know this Denver Nuggets team has been a strong starting team for the most part. Uh, there's opportunities. Maybe the start of the second when Jokic goes to the bench to play live. Uh, I lost first quarter last night with the Jazz, but then I also jumped in at some point. I think I took um, plus three and then pick as well when I looked like the Clippers were kind of hitting that wall in the second half with all the altitude. So there could yeah. be there could be opportunities. I mean, you just for me, especially the NBA that has a million runs. I always ask myself, is this the absolute best number uh, available during the game? And usually the answer is no, because the NBA has crazy runs. I mean, look at the Philly game last night, right? But I I bought six uh, because I thought Philly would start strong, and they did, and I played back plus 14, 12, 10, and then I even uh, laid some off at eight and a half because I had a really big position at six, and I was getting a little nervous in the second half. And, of course, I didn't hit the middle, but at garbage time, I should have probably cashed the 14, but no. I mean, it was a close game in the fourth, and then it wasn't. So. For me, I, I'm not going to take a position position, but I'll bet I'll bet five actually, maybe pretty big if I can get over to MGM. But um, and, what's and your what's them. your like cap at price, if you will?
0: And I'd also point out really quickly, too, that, you know, the, the market moves like the zigzag is very popular. And I think you see the market move with it quite a bit in a lot of these games. We saw a Milwaukee game, too, right? Oh, yeah. Right. That number flipping to Milwaukee being favored. And yes, Harden was injured, but that's the market betting on the zigzag on top of Harden's injury. And you get this ridiculous number where the Nets are laying or Yeah, we're excuse me, catching Uh, two points on their home court, which means, you know, I've factored in home court, uh, but the markets, like about like two and a half with home courts. We're talking about if you're looking at game two, the Bucs would have been laying like six and a half in game three. And that's just insane when you think about it from that perspective. Uh, So for this game, yeah, like I'm I'm looking at, I would lay up to six as well. It looks like on the market right now, you can get that five. This seems to be one of those games where the side that you like, you should be able to get the number that you want. If you're betting this pre-flop between Denver and Phoenix.
1: Yeah, because there are other books you just got to shop around. Not everyone listening has the luxury of multiple accounts like we do in Vegas to to jump around to different books, but but maybe you can figure it out or wait and time the market appropriately. Let's go to that Nets Bucks series because, um, you know, obviously Harden is going to miss some extended time. We don't know for sure. But what do you, let's me first ask you the series price because there's a lot of bashing of the Bucks. Uh, Brooklyn's minus 475, and I think it feels cheap. Uh, I think if they – I mean, you're basically asking yourself, can they steal one in Milwaukee? And 475 does feel a little cheap, but I'm also not necessarily running to fit. So it's probably right.
0: Yeah. I Look, I I think that this should be higher, right? We're talking about like an implied probability of around 82%. The likelihood that they're going to win this series I think is much higher, just given the gap between these two teams. Given the – again, kind of going back to my approach, one of the things that has bothered me about Milwaukee – has been I like I don't care about hearing about switching screens more and trying things out you were the 29th ranked defense in terms of your perimeter right opponents shot nearly 40 percent against you in the regular season you were 27th or lower in non-corner threes defensively and above the break three-point shooting defensively and against a team like Brooklyn that is going to get exploited and so I think people on the surface would look at this and go 40 44 percent from three there's no way Brooklyn keep that up I would argue that they can because statistically this was the second best three-point shooting team in the NBA they shot above 40 percent as a team throughout the regular season KD and Kyrie together shoot 43 percent when they're on the floor together so this is right in line with what they should be able to do against a perimeter defense like Milwaukee and you go to Bud and the adjustments it's funny we talked about all the switching from Milwaukee and then you watch him Doug and he's still dropping Brooke Lopez on pick and rolls because he just doesn't want him to get exploited in space against a couple of these guys so I think the bashing is adequate here I actually thought that Brooklyn should be about a one-point favorite at home or should be on the road here against Milwaukee, despite the fact that the Bucs are at home. And you're going to get that 0-2 angle baked into a lot of these numbers, and that's why this is so high. But I would agree with you. You know, I thought this should be closer to about minus 550 or so, minus 560. We're talking about implied probability of around 85%. I think that's where this this price should be. I would agree with the sentiment that this series price seems a little cheap, given the advantages that Brooklyn has.
1: Yeah, you got the uh baked in the line component, like you mentioned. Uh m- first quarter is minus two. So not yeah. ridiculous, but for a three and a half point spread, it is off market typically, but it's understandable. I I was very skeptical on the show the other day. Like everyone was picking the bucks in game two. I'm just like, guys, pump the brakes. Like everyone's saying, well, Blake Griffin can't duplicate that. He's wide open when they move the ball. It's a wide open short corner three. Why can't he make it? Mike James. Now, some of the drives of the paint, step back. Okay, maybe those won't continue. But when they swing the ball around and it's Mike James or Joe Harris or even Durant or Kyrie, like, they're wide open. So, yeah, the Nets can continue, especially when, the, when they go Durant with the five and go five out. Like, it's unguardable. Once you get Kyrie penetrates and you have to collapse. So, I, I just think it's um, – there's a lot of uh, assumptions made that don't make sense. And that's where kind of like one of my strengths is. I always kind of like poke holes in things. And maybe that makes me an unhappy person. That's a conversation for another day. But I do find, so when people, you know, that's the one beauty of being on the show and you have all these different voices, you hear things. And there'll be times where I'm like, you know what, that's a great angle. I'm going to change my best bet to that. You know, I'm going to mooch it. And then it's like, wait, that just doesn't make sense. So there was a lot of this dismissing of some of the role players of the Nets. I'm like, you know, like, yes, Blake Griffin may not have 25 points again, but he's going to hit an open three. Uh, he's going to – if he's on the baseline and Durant drives and draws a draws Griffin's defender, he's going to do a bounce pass for a dunk. It's not that crazy to see it keep happening. And Kyrie's playing the best I've ever seen him play. Um, it's been ridiculous. Like, I almost am shocked when he misses. And then, obviously, Durant's Durant. So, uh, I would lay the three-and-a-half at the Bucs. I'm just hoping they win so I can come over the top, off the top rope and hammer the Nets in mm-hmm. game four. Because I think this series is going to be one of those – um, either sweeps or gentlemen sweeps. I think it's over. That's why I like the series price. But you know, you're not going to get rich laying uh, close to four dollars or whatever it is. So um, I'm going to hope. I'm going to see. I'm going to see how it looks in in real time. Uh, and if Buds is just still clueless. And you know, if if I could add to the Griffin thing, like I, I think the
0: argument of whether or not because my whole angle with with the postseason every single year is you know, kind of like we were talking about, you ask yourself what is sustainable over the course of a best of seven series, right? You know, if you look at like the the Mavericks are the shining example. The first two games shooting over 50%, Tim Hardaway Jr. shooting 60% from three. Those are not sustainable over the course of a best of seven. And I think your argument of sustainability with Brooklyn is, Can Blake Griffin not so much offensively keep playing this way? Can he keep playing this way defensively, right? Like at the five, he's been incredible. He has been stopping Giannis from driving in the paint. He's been bodying up with Brooke Lopez down low and winning a lot of those battles. He's diving on loose balls, things of that nature. Can he keep that up? playing the small ball five role that he has been doing. And I can understand questions about that. But to your point, I completely agree. Wide open shots in terms of getting them through scheme are sustainable because it's a scheme issue, not so much just luck. And that's going to be something that carries them forward here overall. So I can understand not
1: liking Griffin defensively, but offensively, I think those shots are going to be there for the the entirety of this series. And eventually Jeff Green's going to come back, and he was the primary defender on Giannis. He played at least 33 minutes in each of the regular season meetings. And you're probably saying, "Oh, great, Jeff Green," but like that's a big when you when they're thin in terms of superstars. Beyond that, like Jeff Green matters and it, like prevents Claxton from being out there on offense and things like that. So they're only going to get better in that regard. Uh, I will say this: whether it's Steve Nash, D'Antoni, or whoever, they made all the adjustments. When the Bucks adjusted defensively, they go zone. They put they find Brown in the middle. They uh they they do they go small on Durant. He posts up. Then they go big and then Durant goes the high pick and roll so there's always an answer that this team does and it's really smart coaching as well so um, I, I really like them but I just don't want to you know bet into the huge spot for Milwaukee maybe mm-hmm. if Buck starts strong you can grab five and a half six and then I'm interested but there is a tenacity there's a natural relaxation component to the team up too well it just is it, It's human. Um, yep, and then the, the team down is more desperate and then they get the whistle, not because the league is corrupt and conspiring, but they initiate more contact. There's more driving and then there's contact because of that. And then there's a foul. Like that's what it is. The team that's more desperate is, is initiating the contact and, and getting the loose balls as well. So that's sort of the, the narrative on that. Um, let's go to the other games. Cause we only have one game tonight. So obviously the Brooklyn games tomorrow. Clippers obviously hit a wall, and it's understandable, but no travel. They get kind of adjusted to the altitude. Uh, For me, if I'm going to bet Utah, I have to get Mike Conley. Um, I I need Mike Conley back because he is – I mean, we saw how huge he was, the closeout games against the Grizzlies. Like, the guy is exactly what this team needed, and that's why they went and got him. So, the Clippers obviously played horribly, shooting and all that, and they were right there. So, I, I, I would lean Clippers if no Conley.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with that sentiment. And look, I'm... Take this with a grain of salt for everybody listening, because I am big on the Clippers in the big picture overall. I, I bet them 11-1 to 1 to win the finals after they were down 3-2 to the Dallas Mavericks. I got them at plus 140 before the series started uh, to beat the Utah Jazz. You know, I, I like a lot of what the Clippers bring to the table. And this is where we, we talked about earlier, where my style in terms of just looking at the numbers and, and crunching them and seeing the the advantages that the Clippers have, as opposed to the anecdotal evidence, right, of playoff P, who again yesterday goes 4-17 from the floor, right? You know Marcus Morris shooting one of nine from deep, all those sort of things. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, along with the Conley stuff, this is a team that is the best shooting team in the NBA in terms of percentage, over forty-two percent as a team throughout the regular season. A, a team that uh, I think has all of the weapons to exploit Rudy Gobert at the five. Tyloo's got to improve as a coach, and I don't know what happened to Nick Batum yesterday. He just decided not to just throw him out there uh, in terms of those small ball lineups and getting Batum or assuming getting Gobert out in space. But I think this Clippers team has everything in terms of a bounce back baked in and ready to go for this game, too. You mentioned getting acclimated. It's a very tough turnaround to play a best of seven series against Luka Doncic. Win that on your home floor. Get less than, you know, what, 48 hours between tip off and then go right up to Utah to take on that team who's been waiting for you. So it was a really bad spot for them. And they were still right there um, at the end of that game, only down three with a shot to at least tie it. In regulation, so I, I think this is a really good spot for Los Angeles, and I'm very high on this team in terms of their prospects in the Western Conference.
1: You mentioned Tyloo needed to get better. The substitution patterns were really puzzling me because yeah. I was a huge Canard fan the entire season, and even when he was with the Pistons, to be honest, he was like first guy off the bench, and then he didn't see any time until like Game Six against the Mavs, and then he's playing crunch time now in Game One. Um, and then I, I love the move to get rid of Beverly. I, I do think he's a ball stopper for that for that offense. And but I hate Rondo. I, I can't like unless he's in total, like when he's playoff Rondo and it's really like there's nothing you can do and he's on a roll. That's awesome. But other than that, like he should not be playing, uh, especially down the stretch yesterday when they like need points. And I don't know. It was puzzling substitution. So, I mean, I imagine Lou will figure it out what the best matchup is, whether it is small ball, Batum at the five. But um, the Jazz are legit. Great coach, and if Conley's playing, I I know what you mean with the Clippers and the metrics and all that, but I I just don't trust them. Um, And so I would lean anecdotal if Conley's playing.
0: And and look, to your point, too, I mean, with the issue with Ty is he's got to know when it works and when it doesn't, right? To your point, Kennard, I think Kennard works in the series against Dallas because he provides you offensive pop. But you're not going to get blown by, right, against like a Tim Hardaway or a Dorian Finney-Smith or any of the other ancillary pieces outside of Luka Doncic. You can get get away with the defensive possessions with Luke Kennard. But like yesterday, and this is the thing, you know, Kawhi does deserve some criticism, and we saw this at the beginning of the series uh, with the Dallas Mavericks. Where they just switch so easily, right? Yes. Like they Donovan, he'll be on Donovan Mitchell, and they'll run like a soft screen, and he'll just be like, all right, Luke, you take it. And it's like, well, no, like that Luke Kennard is going to get destroyed by Donovan Mitchell. You cannot do that, and yet they allow it to happen. And he did it with Zubac on those one, you know, those pick and rolls with Luka Doncic, right? He would be guarding Doncic, and he, they would bring Zubac's guy over, and he would just switch really easily, just be like, okay, you do it. And that can't happen as you move forward. And maybe that's a fatigue thing, right? The spot that we talked about after Game Seven, and they're just like, hey, you know what, we'll get to this later in the series so you would expect that to change going forward and I couldn't agree more with you on Rajon Rondo how many times did we see in game one against Utah he would run a pick and roll he would get out he would get open space in the middle of the floor and he would just like bring it back out he would do nothing with it he provides nothing and you have Terrence Mann on the bench who is not a perfect player but he's long he's switchable he is active in terms of his willingness to attack the paint. There's so many better options for Ty Lu out there. And I want to give him a little bit of credit because he did go small against Dallas and it worked. He eventually benched, you mentioned Patrick Beverly and Zubac in that series, and it worked. He he can push the right buttons. It just sometimes it takes him a while to find those buttons to push. So hopefully he figures this out after game one because I felt like there were some very obvious answers for them. To the questions that the Jazz provided at the end of that game.
1: Yeah, I think Game One was sort of a house money game. He was very yeah. using very short leashes on everyone, and, and I think it was more stamina uh, driven. But I think he was just trying everything. I really think he was just going to try everything, see who worked, see what matchups, and then see if he found like kind of found money situation. I'm like, oh, I like this. You know, if he's like Batum can really exploit uh, Bogdanovich or whatever. You know. I, I think that's how he approached it, and even Donovan Mitchell said that between quarters they ran the sound like, "Hey, this team's just played a game seven; they'll fold if we give them an opportunity. We got to put them away now." And uh, but Mitchell's great. I, I'm really glad that he is. I think we forget a large component of that that people just forget how mm-hmm. good he is.
0: Yeah, no, he, he dude, he's freaking awesome. When you got we have a spark plug like that that can shoot the way that he can. Uh, it's incredible and scoring bunches, forty-five points on sixteen to thirty shooting is something that is going is not easy to come by.
1: Uh, let's move to the Sixers Hawks game because Philly's a road favorite here. They took care of business. It was crazy that uh, Atlanta came back and then there was a blowout final score. Um, you expect that the ATS over the years, the team that you know if it's a home team loses game one, they typically they're like about fifty-nine percent covering game two. So here we are headed to the Highlight Factory, got a home dog and. Yesterday before the game I thought there was value in the futures market on the Sixers at 14 to 1 to win it all. Now they're 8 to 1, maybe some 9 to 1s out there. I'm not ready to fire on that just yet, but there are situations where there might be value on some of these between games. If you really love a team to win the next game, you can mm-hmm. kind of that's kind of get ahead of the curve on the on the futures market. So like the Bucks right now are sixteen to one. Now I already have a fourteen to one ticket, and I did not bet that when they were down 0-2 in the conference semis. So I'm just going to let that be because I don't think they're coming back to win the series. But I thought Philly would would be in a dogfight, fight, but I thought they were going to win the series. So, um, like Utah and like Phoenix is right now plus seven fifty. I think that could be a decent play because I think they're legit. They have the right pieces, and I think they're going to handle Denver in the series. Not like blow them out, but I, I think they're going to advance. So. There's just some stuff there. What do you make of this uh, matchup between the Hawks and the Sixers? So I, I think when you look at what happened in the second half of both of these
0: games, this is more like I think this series should play out. You know, I bet after Game One, um, Circa opened it up at pick minus one ten for both sides uh, in this series, and I, I jumped on Philly in that price. I think Philadelphia, from a defensive standpoint, has a lot of stuff that is going to stymie Atlanta. And, you know, we saw it yesterday. Kevin O'Connor over the ringer put, put up the numbers, right? Game one, Danny Green, 49 plays on Trey Young. Game two, Simmons had 31. Tybal had 29. Danny Green had two. That's the adjustment Perfect. that you like to see. Yes. Right, exactly. I don't
1: know why you didn't go with that the initially if you're Doc Rivers, uh, but regardless, like that's the thing you well, like I'll to see. Well, I'll tell you why, and I actually, and I, I'm going to interrupt you because I defended Doc on the show. They're like, why did you do it? Because they blew them out in the regular season like a month ago. They had two games where they're up by 20 at halftime. Yeah. And so I almost don't blame. They're like, oh, this is working. Let's just go pummel them again, right? And it was just, I think there was just like weird uncertainty before the game with Embiid's status. And I think Atlanta, like you could tell from the start, they were just playing hungrier. And, you know, Sixers needed a wake-up call and they got it. So I actually don't blame Doc, all that. I expected the move to uh, Simmons. It made it made sense. Obviously, anyone with who knows basketball would say like, like put the length on Trey Young, you don't get beat. And obviously, Simmons is an excellent defender. So I was big on that. And uh, that's why I was on Simmons under seven and a half rebounds. In fact, he only had three because he was, I figured he was going to play farther away from the hoop because of Trey young.
0: Yep. No. And you look at it too. I mean, look, offensive rating in that game too, 105.2 for the Atlanta Hawks. And the big thing for this is, and Nate McMillan has done a really good job, but, you know, you look at the second half of both of these games in this series so far, McMillan and the Hawks have had nothing in terms of an adjustment going into the second half. They have a negative 32 net rating in the second half of this playoff series up to this point, right? Like, in the second half, they have just been absolutely blitzed by the Philadelphia 76ers. Sixers are averaging 1.3 points per possession offensively against Atlanta. Like, they have just done such a good job in the second half of taking away what the Hawks have done in the first half. And I think you're going to see more of this. I get it. Atlanta, I think what they've lost like one game at home since Nate McMillan has taken over. This is going to be a series that I I thought Philly had a really good chance to win in five. I eventually thought it would be six because Atlanta has improved a little bit. But if they're going to continue to perform this way defensively, which they're perfectly capable of doing, I, I don't see any answer for Joel Embiid on Atlanta's side. They have nothing to match up with him whatsoever. Like in terms of size, I guess Klappel is there, but
1: he can't do anything against him. This is, I think, going to get a little bit more lopsided as this series plays out. So, wow. So, so I w- I've come around on the Hawks. I'm like, you know, throughout the regular season numbers or at least the first half, because it's a different team, right? They're finally healthy. And I've been joking that I feel vindicated that i bet trey young one hundred to win the mvp this year at the beginning of the yeah. season because the team went all in on analytics surrounded him with shooters and kind of like this version was what i was expecting when you really can't help onto him from gallo or bogey or some of the other guys like they're loaded and you mentioned you know since the all-star break were they 18 and four at home ats ats mm-hmm. they're 18 and four something insane like that so I think they're tough, but Philly with that defense is really, really tough. Now they were bombing. Like Seth Curry is just uh, such a a, a luxury and a, and a delight to have on a team when he's really just not um, sort of known for just being a knockdown shooter. But he's been great. Um, Embiid is fantastic, and yeah. So you like Philly here? Is there and an, is there a way to kind of bet a, like fade Brooklyn almost by betting Philly futures? Do you like them? to win it all at eight to one or nine to one.
0: I mean, I think there there, there I think there's theoretical value in a number like that. The problem is like, if you can find the, the perfect way to do it, right. Is to find a book like Circa. It's not available in all markets where they have a two way futures market. Right. Sure. And you can, you can bet a no. Uh, but regardless, like I, I think Philly, the one thing you like about Philly is they have something that Brooklyn does not. And that's Joel Embiid. Like they have, they will have just like Atlanta, no answer to match up with Joel Embiid in any way whatsoever. My problem is, like, if you're boiling it down to a very simplistic formula, Joel Embiid is going to be trading twos for threes with the big two or big three of Brooklyn, and that's just not a formula I think that is going to work out ultimately, especially if Harden comes back, right? If he's going to be ready for that kind of a series, that's going to be a problem. So I think, like, out of all the teams that are out there right now, there's the two teams that I think match up the best would be either Philly or the Los Angeles Clippers. So there might be some value in a number like that, but I've just been so high on Brooklyn coming out of the Eastern Conference. There's been no value in betting on them to do so, but I just think ultimately it is their conference, whether, you know, whoever is in front of them.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that. We talked about it on the show. Uh, well, a couple of things. I already affiliate three to one to win the East, so I'm not going to fire. Because...
0: I got them at thirty four to one to win the whole thing
1: before the season started. So I'm, I'm hoping uh, they can. Yeah, I hope they can pull it off. One hundred percent. But, but, but you said there's you automatically said there's no value on Brooklyn. Well, why not? They so the the news is it's the lowest they've anyone's been all season. They're plus one fifteen right now. And look, I, I'm not eager to run and fire on a plus one fifteen, but. You know, they're going to finish off if we think they're going to finish off this series and we think they're going to finish off, you know, they're going to be favored in the next two series. Like I first of all, I love the East at plus, minus one thirty five. Like that, that was like a couple days ago. I've been tweeting about it. I think the winner of the East is absolutely winning the title. Now, the Clippers give me a little pause in the jazz, but or even the sun. I, I just think the East is that much better. You're going to get a price. You're going to get an attractive price as well.
0: Well, I think it wouldn't, would it not behoove you? Like if it's that low of a price in terms of Brooklyn to win it all, uh, would not it behoove you to then just bet them before each in the next two series and just roll that over, right? If you're only getting like a plus 115, you know, I, I would think that it's going to be Philly. You'd think that series price, I think it should be under $2, if not just right around $2. It's the same thing if it's going to be the Clippers or the Jazz in the NBA Finals, which I think those are your two best options coming out of the Western Conference. There's going to be some relatively cheap series prices before the series begin. Wouldn't you get a little bit more bang for your buck if you're betting them before the series and rolling it over as opposed to betting them out right in the futures at like plus 115?
1: Yeah, no. I mean, the futures market, and even in two-way markets, it's around plus 115, plus 120. So you you are – uh hamstrung to that i i just i'm not so sure i'm not so sure because if they look that good and then you're obviously assuming it's philly but what if it's not and then it's you right. know so and what if philly struggles and needs seven games or six games so when you're talking about such a low price like plus 115 sometimes it is better just to take the future yeah. because oh. it's you know obviously the the variance is so so minuscule
0: and to your point, right, the main star for Philadelphia is dealing with a partially torn meniscus, and we don't know what's going to happen with Embiid as he puts more and more minutes on that knee. And they would be, I would think, at least a $4 to four favorites around that uh, over Atlanta in an Eastern Conference Finals, probably higher uh, in terms of a series price. So if you were to do that, you would put yourself behind the eight ball a little bit if you're rolling that over, if you don't grab the plus 115, because if
1: it is Atlanta, that is going to shift to an odds-on favorite for the Brooklyn Nets. Cool. So in terms of anything left, uh, again, the shelf life of these pods is tough. We talked about mm-hmm. each of the remaining series. Um, yeah, no, look, so I don't think I don't think any of us like the dog here. I get little well, Clippers. I think I think you're still on the Clippers giving out hope yeah. that they could advance and all that fun stuff.
0: Yeah, that's if, if there's anything right now at this point uh, on Wednesday that is worth playing, I think you can get uh, LA like plus one eighty in that range uh, to beat the Utah Jazz. I think that would be the way to look at this point if we're talking about future series prices. Anything that has a uh, value still in it.
1: All right, my man, uh, thank you for taking the time. And it was a very fun discussion. I, I guess it's a little bit a little beefier when it's just a handful of teams left. A little more digestible, and we've it worked out well that it was a day that only has one NBA game. So thanks for the time, man. And thanks for having me, Doug. I appreciate it. Sounds to me like you guys, a couple of bookies. All right. That's going to do it for this podcast. Thanks to Jonathan Von Tobel, AKA JVT. Really fun to dive deep into the NBA playoffs. He does a wonderful job with matchups and some of the metrics. And I always find it interesting and, you know, I'm definitely much more of a situational player. So that's why I like to pick the brain of people who model or just are heavy into analytics. I think it's just good to get a kind of another, um, viewpoint on the game and just more data points whether it be narrative or um or or actual numbers so i, I always appreciate that perspective i hope you guys did too He's been a good dude as well so thanks to everyone don't forget the daily wager podcast monday through friday posting around 12 15 12, 30 p.m eastern and uh that's only 10 minutes so it's not as lengthy as the weekly one but hopefully it has just as much winning information so that's going to do it for us and we'll see you back here next week This is Behind the Bets, the podcast. You can listen or follow the Behind the Bets podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also, check out Doug Kazarian on Daily Wager, weekdays at 6 Eastern on ESPN2.